0: You're listening to the Cyberwire network, powered by N2K. Uh,
1: the new updates that they're proposing, it, it brings it a little bit more into today. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Caveat, the CyberWire's
0: privacy surveillance law and policy podcast. I'm Dave Bittner, and joining me is my co-host, Ben Yellen, from the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Hello, Ben. Hello, Dave. Today, Ben discusses a new lawsuit filed against a local public utility for providing user data to law enforcement. I've got the story of California's age-appropriate Design Code Act. And later in the show, we've got Bob Maley from Black Kite. He's here to discuss the Graham Leach-Bliley Act, which is federal regulation that requires financial institutions to safeguard sensitive customer information. While this show covers legal topics and Ben is a lawyer, the views expressed do not constitute legal advice. For official legal advice on any of the topics we cover, please contact your attorney. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. All right, Ben, let's jump right into our stories here. Why
2: don't you kick things off for us? So mine comes from the good folks at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and it is a lawsuit being filed against the city of Sacramento, California, the capital of my uh, native state, (laughs) and specifically the Sacramento Municipal Utility District, which is the public utility in the city of Sacramento. Hmm. So the allegation is that The utility has been giving a treasure trove worth of user data, sometimes from entire zip codes, to law enforcement to help with drug arrests. Hmm. Basically, the idea is with smart meters, you can get a very accurate reading of somebody's electricity use within 15-minute increments. Hmm. And so if something is suspicious, uh, then that's something that law enforcement might be interested in. Mm -hmm. I guess the logic here is that if you're using grow lamps, that's going to use an untoward amount of electricity. That will set off alarm bells uh, among the local law enforcement agency. They might want to initiate either prosecutions or civil fines. (laughs) Or Uh, you could just be mining cryptocurrency, right? (laughs) You could be mining cryptocurrency. One of the people uh, who was named in this lawsuit said that, hey, I'm a senior citizen. I keep all the lights on uh, because I'm concerned about my own safety. Yeah. And I just happen to use a lot of electricity. Huh. So it's not necessarily that people are using grow lamps. Right. It also seems to me, and it certainly seems the Electronic Frontier Foundation, that Sacramento put a policy in place to bust people for growing small amounts of marijuana that are still above the legal limits in California. Okay. And they've done so to raise revenue for the city. They ah. put in a program in 2017. They've raised several hundred million dollars through these uh Fines. So it's a marijuana speed trap. Exactly. I mean, it's basically <laughs> a speed camera. <laughs> right, right. Uh, So the lawsuit's being filed on behalf of several groups. One of them is a interest group representing Asian Americans. And that's hmm. another very interesting element of this lawsuit is there is an allegation that this data is being selectively sought by law enforcement to target Asian American communities. Hmm. Uh, and they introduced some pretty compelling evidence— from members of the public utility and members of the Sacramento government, that that seems to be the intention of the policy. Hmm. They are disproportionately targeted. Something like 80% of uh, the data comes from uh, households with names that are of Asian descent. Uh, So it's both a discrimination lawsuit, but more interesting for our purposes, it goes after... California's version of the Fourth Amendment against unreasonable searches and seizures. The idea being that you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your own utility data. Mm -hmm. Uh, Setting aside the discrimination angle here, which I I think is real, I unfortunately kind of question the premise that you do have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your utility data. Hmm. Um, This feels like a classic third-party doctrine case to me where... You are, uh, just by the nature of the transactions that you engage in in your house, turning on the lights, turning on your grow lamps, blasting music, having six Amazon Alexas, whatever. (laughs) uh, You know that the utility company is going to keep a record of that. They're keeping a record of their usage. So you either are aware or should be aware Uh, that that data is being submitted to that utility, Hmm. and you've lost an expectation of privacy in that data once it's been surrendered to the utility. And in that sense, I don't really think this is a Fourth Amendment search uh, because if there's not a reasonable expectation of privacy, there's no search. Hmm. Uh, What I think is that that shows the problematic nature of the third-party doctrine in the digital age. The fact that this utility... Can target specific zip codes and collect data that could easily be incriminating but doesn't necessarily indicate any type of criminal activity or criminal intent is bad and dangerous. Uh, And the fact that it's being used as kind of a money marketing or kind of a uh, money grubbing scheme by the local Sacramento government makes it even more concerning. The other question is whether this is legal under California statute. So there is a relevant California statute that says um, public utilities generally shall not share, disclose, or otherwise make accessible to any third party a customer's uh, electrical consumption data. Uh, That sounds pretty reasonable. Um, But a separate law, the California Public Health Records Act, prohibits public utilities from disclosing consumer data except – uh, upon court order or the request of a law enforcement agency relative to an ongoing investigation. Hmm. So I think what the city is trying to say is this is all an ongoing investigation of a of the problem of people growing marijuana in their own house. It's like the war on terror. Yeah. It never it, ends. It never ends. <laughs> I love these endless wars because they unlock so many fun powers. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so what this means is if you live in the city of Sacramento, especially if you are of Asian descent, you're under constant monitoring, uh, and it's really going to chill your activity in your own house, and you might have a reasonable fear that if for whatever reason you're uh, consuming a large amount of electricity, that you're going to be under the watchful eye of law enforcement. So that's, that's a major concern. The fact that since about 2009, 2010, we've had these smart meters Mm -hmm. in use in in most places in the country that can really get down to a granular level. Um, Whereas in the past, it was kind of an aggregated read of your electricity usage Mm. by several hours or by the day. So you couldn't tell if somebody was doing something really acute. Uh, And now you can. So... I'm just kind of disturbed that this is a a practice that's ongoing. I'm curious to see where this lawsuit goes. Uh, And it's just a story that really caught my eye. Do you have any thoughts or
0: insights on the the fact that they seem to be targeting
2: Asian people here? That seems odd to me. It is odd. Uh, So there is a large Asian American population in the city of Sacramento. Mm. And in the uh, complaint that was filed with the court, they quote a couple of— uh, public officials saying, "Yeah, this is a big problem among Asian households," uh, and they kind of have the data to prove it. They are disproportionately surveilling Asian households. Hmm. Um, I think somebody said something, uh, and they noted noted this in the complaint. Like, uh, yeah, it's these Asian families again. Um, wow. Well, I mean, is there any
0: evidence that that the Asian families in this community are disproportionately the ones who are
2: are growing? That is the allegation uh, leveled by uh, certain members of the local Sacramento police. Hmm. Um, I have no idea to know about the veracity of that data. Right. Uh, And you still can't racially profile people, even if they are disproportionately likely to commit certain illegal acts. Mm -hmm. Um, California has, has statutes on that. Uh, and it seems like that's going on. If the targets are in zip codes where there are a lot of Asian American households and you're not collecting from predominantly white households, which the evidence seems to indicate that that's the case, then it's just kind of rank discrimination. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's I think it's no wonder that this Asian American advocacy organization has taken on this lawsuit along with the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And what relief are they looking to get here? So they're just looking for a declaratory judgment. That actually, to me, uh, is is favorable to the plaintiffs uh, because sometimes courts, if you if your prayer for relief is monetary relief, you know, give me hundreds of thousands of dollars for emotional distress, mm. that can seem like a frivolous lawsuit where you're really just money grubbing. Um, that's not what's happening here. They are act, uh, asking for a declaratory judgment. Basically telling the city of Sacramento to knock it off, Hmm. um, to have the court enjoin the city from uh, collecting, warrantlessly collecting this public utility data uh, and whatever nominal damages for attorney's fees, et cetera. Um, They're requesting that as well. But really it's just a declaratory judgment saying this is wrong. This is illegal. This violates California statute. This violates California's equivalent of the Fourth Amendment. Uh, and it's uh something that that just has to be stopped. Wow, I
0: what I think that strikes me is I wonder if there's a, a a case to be made here that if you're if you're up to this sort of thing, maybe solar panels are the way to go. Yeah,
2: exactly. Maybe that's that's the <laughs> right? solution. You know, sometimes with these outdated Fourth Amendment doctrines, where it's well, you don't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in your utility data. The law is so backwards that sometimes the best solution is to outmaneuver the government with technology. Hmm. <laughs> uh, so, I'll see your smart reader and I'll raise you solar panels. Right, right. <laughs> uh, that, that might be the most equitable solution if you're a family. Now, of course, that... Uh, creates major equity concerns because sure. I don't know if you've noticed, but solar panels—the installation is relatively expensive. Yes, <laughs> uh, my parents yes. keep insisting that I get solar panels on on our house, which is great. I I'd ideally love to do that, but uh-huh. I I get some sticker shock when I see how much it would cost to yeah, install them.
0: I know I've been through the same thing, yeah. so
2: it, it's just not something that every family can do.
0: Right, right. All right. Well, that's an interesting case for sure. I'll have to keep an eye on that to see how it plays out. Yes. Uh, that's a good one. Uh, my story this week uh, comes uh, from uh, a couple places. There's a, a online site called the Huntin Privacy Blog, which is uh, uh, my primary source here. And then Tech Dirt had an interesting take on this case as well. Uh, California recently enacted the California Age Appropriate Design Code Act, uh, which um the governor recently signed, so it is in action now and the the act the the, the purpose of this act is to, of course, uh Ben protect the children. It's always about protecting to, the children we have, to, we have to we have to protect the
2: children If you just say protect the children in the law, it has to be good. that's what I've heard. That's right, that's yeah. right um so
0: what this act uh intends
2: to do is
0: uh, protect kids by requiring that organizations, Uh, Make their uh, default privacy settings offered by online services, products, or features to a high level of privacy unless the business can demonstrate a compelling reason that a different setting is in the best interests of children. That seems to me a loophole you could— Like, drive a truck through. (laughs) It sure does, Yeah. Right? right. Uh, They need to concisely and prominently provide privacy information, terms of service policies, and community standards, using clear language suited to the age of the children likely to access the online service, (laughs) product, or feature. So there goes your EULA.
2: Yeah, I'm sure my three-year-old would uh, be, you know, (laughs) could very intelligently read the the language here that disclaims Uh, responsibility. They have to complete a Data Protection Impact Assessment
0: and uh, upon request provide that to the California Attorney General. Uh, they have to estimate the age of children users or children who are going to be users of their site within a reasonable level of certainty appropriate to the risks that arise from the business's data management practices. Um, they have to uh, enforce the published terms and policies. They have to provide prominent, accessible, and responsive tools to help children to exercise their privacy rights and report Concerns. Uh, in terms of enforcement, uh, the California Attorney General uh, is tasked with enforcing this. Violators may be subject to a penalty of up to $2,500 per affected child for each negligent violation and up to $7,500 per affected child for each intentional violation. Um, so, okay, this sounds great. I mean, we all want to make kids safer online. Um, the folks over at Tech Dirt uh, pointed out uh, one of their uh, – I guess I guess you could call this an opinion piece by Mike Masnick uh, that we've been through this before. Yep. <laughs> the Supreme Court kind of swatted this down, and, and that's where I want you to step in here, Ben, and give us a little insight on – what we're talking about here.
2: Sure. So I think first we have to acknowledge that the problem they're trying to solve here is real. We don't want uh, children to be subject to questionable data collection practices. Mm -hmm. Um, They are more vulnerable, and even though they have the same opportunity to read the EULA as we do, they are children. Uh, So they're impulsive (laughs) and don't make... The same sort of wise decisions that we all make when we click uh, agree to these terms of service. Right. So you have to first acknowledge that this is a problem that they're trying to resolve. Uh, I think the concern is that this is pretty blatantly unconstitutional and the Supreme Court has basically said as much. Hmm. Uh, There was a scare in the mid-90s based on legitimate fears about child exploitation online uh, that we needed to come up with some type of regulation Uh, protecting children's data on sites that they are likely to use. So this was a bill that was proposed in the Mm mid-90s. It turned into something that will probably sound familiar to our listeners, the Communications Decency Act. (laughs) Uh, We only talk about Section 230. Generally, when we talk about that act, there are a lot of other parts of that act intended to protect children online. Uh, And part of the legislative scheme was to deny minors access to, quote, potentially harmful speech. Hmm. The Supreme Court said that in order to do that, to deny minors access to that speech, the Act, the uh, Communications Decency Act, effectively suppresses a large amount of speech that adults have a constitutional right to receive and to address to one another. Hmm. Uh, That burden on adult speech is unacceptable if less restrictive alternatives would at least be as effective in achieving the legitimate uh, purpose that that statute was enacted to serve. Hmm. Uh, so I think this idea is you're being overbroad in putting a burden on speech uh, if you even just suspect that a minor might view it. In California's defense, they have kind of are trying to get around this unfavorable Supreme Court ruling by coming up with a definition of the type of content that they think would appeal to minors. Uh, So they list anything that's directed to children as defined by COPPA, the Children's Online Privacy Protection Act, something that is uh, routinely accessed by a significant number of children based on whatever uh, competent and reliable evidence they have, advertisements marketed to children substantially similar to or the same as uh, something accessed by children, design elements that are known to be of interest to children, including but not limited to, games, cartoons, music, and celebrities who appeal to children. Hmm. A significant amount of the audience uh, is determined based on internal research company to be children. I think that last one might be a way where they can say, yeah, some adults might view this stuff, but really 90% of people uh, who are watching blippy videos are either parents <laughs> <laughs> of young children or the young children themselves. Right. Uh, I got to say, though, Dave, there are a lot of, Weird people who do weird people uh, weird things online. Yeah, and many of those people are interested in games, cartoons, music, and celebrities who appeal to children. I've been known to watch an episode of
0: SpongeBob from time to time.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> Bluey is a very intelligent show. Right. <laughs> uh, if I want to watch it after my kids fall asleep, when there's nothing else to do, I'm not going to, you know, necessarily deny that opportunity to myself. Sure. So I think this will have some sort of suppressive effect on adults who want to view some of this content. And I think the concern in our court system is these types of regulations tend to be overbroad. I'm not sure how you could more narrowly target it to content specifically geared towards children. Um, I think perhaps the courts and legislatures across the country can work together or in an iterative way to really hone in on that definition. So it only covers the amount of material necessary to protect children. Hmm. Uh, I've noticed just with my own kids in them watching YouTube kids that YouTube does a pretty good job of curating content for children. I mean, hmm. all of the videos available on YouTube kids based on the algorithm seem to me to be quite age appropriate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there seems to be a way to to do this targeting from the companies themselves. So maybe uh, the government can hone in on their targeting uh, policies as well, so that these restrictions aren't overbroad. Why, why would California do this? I mean, they're aware
0: of the previous Supreme Court precedent, right? They they know this is likely to 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 meet resistance from the tech companies and possibly even just get slapped down.
2: Is this performative? I mean, what what what
0: do you think is going on here?
2: Some of it is to address a real problem, but yeah, some of it is performative, and sometimes you just want to test the court system. Hmm. I mean, think about the story we did last week on the Texas law that uh, that prevents uh, big tech companies from censoring based on political viewpoints. Right. That seemed, based on uh, court precedent, to be blatantly unconstitutional. They passed it anyway, and the appeals court upheld the law. So you never know if you're going to get a favorable judicial opinion. Even if it does uh, eventually make it up to the Supreme Court, you might get a, a period where the law is enforced. You have a new working majority on the Supreme Court. So. Right. Yes, so it's, this is – if nothing else, is an unpredictable Supreme Court at this moment in history, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, so you don't know – I mean they've sure been known to reverse some of their past decisions. Yeah. Uh, I can think of a couple of very prominent examples of that. right? Uh, So, yeah, I mean, it it could be just testing the court system. If you think that this is a societal problem and you are very interested in protecting kids, pass a law, try to make the uh, type of regulation as uh, narrowly targeted as possible to the content that's actually intended for and viewed only by children. Hmm. Uh, I can't see a way around the problem with the fact that there are just a lot of adults who have hobbies of things that seem to appeal only to children. Yeah, I've spent enough time on the internet to know that that's the case. Yeah, and I've. There used to be a uh, BronyCon convention in Baltimore City. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that those people exist. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So that's that seems to me to be the main problem here.
0: Yeah. All right, well, we will have links to uh, those stories in our show notes, of course, and we would love to hear from you. If there's a topic you'd like us to consider for the show, you can email us. It's caveat at thecywire dot com. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Visit com. Ben, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Bob Maley. Uh, he is from an organization called Black Kite, and we are discussing the Graham Leach Bliley Act, the GLBA which is a federal regulation that requires financial institutions to safeguard sensitive customer information. Here's my conversation with Bob Maley.
1: Well, it's been in place uh, quite a long time. Uh, There were some uh, issues, uh, and I don't recall exactly uh, which uh, financial issue it was, but uh, it is literally, when we talk about it, uh, we talk about uh, GLBA is back in the day. So it's 1999. I believe, is is when it uh, was first uh, brought into bear. And there's been a, a number of updates over the last uh, several decades, but uh, it's been around a while.
0: And so what are these updates that are uh, going to be affecting some people anew here?
1: Well, the new update's really interesting. Uh, you know, it, this has always been in place for banking, and uh, the banking industry is is very adept at uh, you know, obviously they need to be adept at protecting their customers' information. The type of information shared with banks is significant. But, you know, if you look at any of the the press, uh, what's happening out in the criminal world is that we continue to see uh, releases of data, uh, ransomware, and a number of other types of things that happen. So, uh, you know, the Federal Trade Commission has... Been involved with this for a number of years. They they go back and and they look at information security. If you have a breach from information security laxness, uh, and they they they, they kind of took a, a view on that that that's uh, deceptive practices. And there are a couple hmm. cases where uh, they've actually uh, fined a, a companies uh, for that for deceptive practices. Uh, And I think that was a really unique way of trying to look at how do we globally bring all businesses into some type of, uh, you know, cybersecurity breach notification and those kind of things. So uh, the new updates that they're proposing, it, it brings it a little bit more into today. Uh, there are some technical updates uh, that they're talking about, things like uh, multi-factor authentication, uh, secure destruction of data, uh, the use of encryption. Uh, and again, that's, that's across the board. And those are things that, that simply are good practice. Whenever there's a, a standard, whenever there's a regulation, technology changes. And if they fail to keep up with technology, then it, it goes out of date. So th- those components of it, I think th- that, that's a great thing.
0: And so who do we suspect that this uh, update is going to affect most?
1: Well, it's not really going to affect the banking industry because they're already uh, doing most of the things that are in, in the new updates. Where it's really going to affect uh, is there's a whole new group of businesses that are not in the banking sector. They're They're non-banking companies, but because of their business process, uh, what they do is uh, they, they may be involved in uh, some type of uh, enabling a financial product or a service for their customers. And uh, you, you, these are ones that you, you might not think about when you go to a, a car dealer and you want to buy a car and you want to have the car dealer finance that. Well, that act of the car dealer enabling a financial product or service now brings the car dealer under the scope of what they're proposing uh, in GLBA. And it's not just uh, car dealers. Uh, it's uh, It could be uh, real estate, appraisal services, collection agencies, check cashing services, uh, tax prep firms. It, it goes on and on. And it, it's it's really going to broaden the scope of small businesses and companies that now really have to pay attention, and it's not really just the small businesses though. There's another sector uh, that'll be significantly impacted, and and that is uh, higher education. Uh, hmm. How many how many people go to a a, a university or an institution, uh, and where do they get their uh, Student loans from it's enabled uh, those universities have departments and divisions to uh, figure out well how can we put you in touch with the right uh, lender so you can get your education loan so you can go to school here so now that involves and includes them in scope of, of the updates.
0: You know, whenever we're talking about regulations, uh, you know, one person's protection is another person's undue burden. Um, In terms of feedback to this, you know, what sorts of things are we hearing?
1: Well, we really haven't heard a lot yet, simply because this has kind of been under the radar. Uh, (laughs) It's just getting out into the press. Uh, People are just starting to talk about it. But I I can imagine that uh, there will be some (laughs) weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, (laughs) And, and it's hard to be uh, in, in my position, and and but I do empathize with it. But you know, we we do need to protect uh, that data. Uh, the you know for whatever business we're in, whatever uh, services we're providing for our customers, we have some type of data from them, whether it's personal information, financial information, and we should be doing those best things uh, that we can in order to protect them. But in reality. Uh, and especially in today's economy, most businesses are struggling just to stay afloat and to now have to either improve and in a lot of cases maybe bring in brand new security programs. Uh, it will be very challenging.
0: Are there any specific things that come to mind here in terms of you know the practical things that people will have to put in place in response to this?
1: Well, one of the first things is they're going to have to have some kind of a security program. And it doesn't really specify uh, how complex that security program is, uh, and my guess is it's going to the requirements going to be aligned with uh, NIST standards. Most regulations that that's the, what they do, but when you do that, so your, your security program involves quite a few things. Uh, again, you know, I talked a little bit about it. Some of the technical controls, and that's uh, you know, multi-factor authentication, and the, you know the use of encryption. And, you know, multi-factor authentication is, everybody talks about it. It's part of zero trust. Uh, Every new executive order that comes out from the White House, every regulation, every framework, multi-factor authentication, first thing that you should do. But in reality, that is something that decreases the ease of transactions. Mm. Uh, Yes, it makes it safer, but when you want to go log into your bank, and your bank tells you, oh, well, we need to get the code that we're going to send you on your phone. Now, for a security-minded person like myself, it gives me comfort. I don't mind doing that. But for many people, uh, that increases friction in the transaction. And in the business world, if you add friction, occasionally what Will happen is that transaction will be aborted. Uh, they'll stop. You'll you'll lose that sale, so to speak. So we try to make everything that we do as frictionless as possible. So there's that balance. So we, we're going to be required to do MFA, and how do we do that in in the, the least amount of friction as possible? And, and that's just one thing. You know, there's another thing that uh, every one of these businesses is going to have to appoint somebody essentially, they, they don't name it as a chief information officer or, uh, or a chief security officer. What they do say is that there has to be someone in that program uh, who is accountable for that program. They have to do a, uh, a risk assessment of their entire organization's information security on a regular basis, and they have to report that to the board. So that that's the components of a security program that my guess is a lot of these new organizations that are going to be subject to that's that's going to uh, deer in the headlights look it's that's not their (laughs) core business that's not what they do so that'll be challenging
0: yeah I mean it, it is fascinating isn't it now what options does the FTC have here in terms of you know carrot versus stick and and how they can come at the organizations who are going to fall under this
1: well, obviously, the regulation is the stick. Um, the, and I don't think there's really a, so so much to speak a, a carrot. Uh, but mm. from what I understand, as far as enforcement goes, it's not going to be the same as it is uh, in the banking industry. So in the banking industry, you have uh, regulatory bodies that, that, that you have to report to. Uh, they come in and they audit you. They look at your security program. So there is Enforcement in that uh, regulated world. But even though this is a new regulation, the FTC will be the ones enforcing it. So, my guess is what will happen is that stick will happen if you are subject to a breach. So, if you have a breach and you haven't been following these protocols, at that point, that's when you're going to uh, get hit with a stick. I
0: see. So it really pr- may be more reactive than proactive in, in terms of how the FTC approaches this for, for these particular types of organizations.
1: Yeah, and and I, I get that. I How would you go, uh, go about bringing, uh, and we don't have numbers on this, but I, I assume it's in the hundreds of thousands of companies now that are going to be subject to this. How would you manage that? How would you audit that? So uh, logistically, it, I, I just don't see that happening. Yeah,
0: what are your recommendations then? You know, if if an organization thinks that they're going to fall under this, what sort of things should they be doing and putting in place?
1: It's not just these organizations. I know uh, I've been speaking a lot about the problem I see with best practices today, that, uh, you know, we have this standard uh, set of best practices that are outlined in things like NIST and things that we should be doing. And uh, obviously, this is a new set of best practices that are for a a much wider audience. So we, you know, we look at the history of these best practices and how they've actually impacted cybercrime. And there was a recent study published on Cybercrime Magazine uh, about the cost of ransomware that they say over the last six years, the cost of ransomware has gone up 57 times. So Hmm. to me, best practices, the way they do them today, aren't really working. And that's because they're so complex. If you're a brand new organization that's now being covered by this, and you look at all these things that, that we just talked about, all these technical controls, that we have to have a security program, we have to have incident response. Uh, we, <laughs> you know, it, it's like, uh, what, what do you do? Well, you have to do something. So you start out with basics. And one of the basics that we try to teach people is that you have to think like the bad actors. And how are the bad actors going after organizations? And there are certain technical things that bad actors, uh, it's called uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that they use, that are uh, researchers know what they are, that they target specific things. And you need to understand what those specific things are and address them first as part of your security program to ensure that you're not that company that's going to be under the uh, scope of FTC after a breach. Prevent the breach. The best thing you can do.
2: Ben, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, Graham Leach-Bliley has been a tool in the arsenal of regulators for more than twenty-five years now, but I think. As we are evolving through the digital age, depending on the presidential administration, it's a very effective way to regulate uh, online behavior Mm. because even though it's intended to regulate financial institutions, um, a lot of our financial transactions take place online. Right. Uh, So it's just a very effective tool in the toolbox, um, and it looks like they've taken – Pretty robust action in strengthening the reach of this law uh, through these regulations. Yeah, it's fascinating. All right. Well, again, our
0: thanks to Bob Maley from Black Kite for joining us. We do appreciate him taking the time.